0: Welcome to Prime Alpha's interview series, insights from industry practitioners discussing their journey and their discoveries. Hello, my name is Amanda Jogia, the CEO of Prime Alpha, an online ecosystem bringing together alternative opportunities and their investors. It is my pleasure to introduce Peter Teslar, the founder and portfolio manager of Lucerne Capital Management. Lucerne, founded in 2002, specializes in fundamental bottom-up stock selection with a focus on mid-cap European markets. Welcome, Peter.
1: Thank you, Amanda. Very, very glad to be here today.
0: So excited to have you here. I think you have such a unique background and journey. Can you tell us um, about your journey?
1: Well, it's, we can start at a certain point. I, I won't start at the point where I was born. It, gets a little, it goes a little bit too far back, but I was born in the Netherlands and born raised there and had my basic education there. And then I went to law school in the Netherlands. I worked as a lawyer for a little bit. Thought that was not very creative and exciting. And then my dad had a business. It was a family business in the marine equipment business in Rotterdam. And I was always supposed to start running that business. So he said, in order to learn how to do business, you have to go to the US. Why don't you go to business school? So I I, I picked a bunch of schools and... There weren't many people from the Netherlands that applied to uh, the top business schools in the US. So I I could basically take my pick. I remember I hand wrote the applications to all the top schools. And I, I think it was very easy to get accepted to all of them. And I convinced my dad that Columbia was the right school to go to. My own reasoning was that it was in New York City and I didn't want to go out to the West Coast or somewhere in Boston or Philadelphia. I thought New York would be a cool place to be. And I always had, a, had an interest in finance. And, and Columbia was known at the time and still is for its finance program and you know value investing, Graham, Graham and Dodd, et cetera. So I uh, applied there and then I went to Columbia for an MBA program with a concentration in finance for two years. And ended up working for ABN Row. The, the largest Dutch bank at the time and still is. Uh, moved back to the Netherlands and worked there for about eight years in, uh, as a corporate finance analyst and then, and then M&A advisor. And I was in, in the kind of program where they groom you for senior management roles. So they rotate you every four years. So after four years as an analyst, four years as an m and advisor, they sent me to New York to, uh, basically, there was not much there, and equities, uh, corporate finance, et cetera, in New York, but to basically run it and set it up and grow it. And that was my first interaction, actually, with the public equity markets. The goal was really to set up an equity brokerage business, selling European equities into the U.S. markets, basically to the Lucerne capitals of this world. Uh, particularly European equity. So, and ABN AMRO at the time had gone on an acquisition spree. They had bought Alfred Burke, the Scandinavian leading brokerage firm. They had bought Chimo, the leading Italian uh, firm. They had Bankner Fleas in France. So, the uh, Horgevet in the UK. So, they had this sort of patchwork of, of European uh, uh, brokerage firms, but it wasn't pulled together. So, the first thing I did in New York was basically hire somebody to pull all that research together into a pan-European product and sell it to uh, the Fidelities and Wellingtons, etc. of this world. So we, I, I grew that business from when I started, it was in the mid-90s, uh, we had about $2 million in commission revenues. And when I left in 2000, I think we were, after Merrill Lynch, the largest European equities commission generator in New York. And uh, I think we, uh, at the peak, we generated about $125 million in in commissions. So that job was sort of done. And I went to the board of ABN AMRO and I said, look, what what's, what's next? And there wasn't really that much next. And I had to wait for a couple of years to maybe run the corporate finance business out of London. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I was married, uh, kids, based in New York. So then basically with uh, one board member who I was very friendly with, we decided, okay, I, I basically go out on my own, leave the bank. I struck an agreement with ABN AMRO where they seeded uh, Lucerne Capital with uh, $25 million. So that's, that's how I got started. And that was around 2001. There was also reality to the board of ABN AMRO was that I had been doing this corporate finance MA work in, uh, in Europe, I'd done a couple of cross border MA transactions in industrials between some Swiss, German and Dutch companies, and uh, done a lot of valuation work. And then I looked at the public equity markets and I looked at how these public equity investors, these massive institutions invested, and I found that they hardly did any fundamental work. And it was all basically driven by what the research self-side analysts were telling them, and they reacted to buy recommendations, upgrades, downgrades, but rarely did I see any of my clients do some fundamental work that I was used to doing myself. So I thought, okay, there's a great opportunity to uh, actually apply sort of this rigorous US-style Cash flow based analysis, repeatable uh, analysis to that inefficient European market and generate long-term returns. And that was my basic pitch. And I said, you can do it on the long side, the short side, it basically doesn't matter. The opportunity set is everywhere, particularly in mid-caps because they are not very well covered by the sell side or the buy side and particularly in continental Europe. And continental Europe is so attractive, it still is, because it's it's such a, a complex area. And and wherever you see complexity, there's confusion, there are anomalies, uh, people are scared to get involved, uh, people misunderstand things, they misanalyze things, they misvalue things. Well, they, they sort of harmonize the accounting standards now across Europe more than was the case at the time. But you have different accounting standards, you have different cultures, different corporate cultures, different uh, legal frameworks under which the companies are operating and different languages. So a lot of barriers within Europe, which which do not automatically make it one big market of 450 million inhabitants but so, so there's a lot of complexity and complexity is challenging but provides opportunities and those inefficiencies are being traded away right in, in, in any sort of setting whether it's in commodities or in in fixed income or any kind of arbitrage and the remarkable thing about Europe is that so much is changing all the time that the ine- inefficiencies, have just remained there throughout the years. And if, if nothing else, they've become larger. Uh, the region has become more ignored and has become more inefficient and more, more complex. And on the other hand, there are just fewer players involved that are really sophisticated and doing the work. So it's, it's been a great journey from that perspective, from an investment perspective, that we focused on an area where there are opportunities to continue to be opportunities. And uh, of course we've adjusted the investment process over the years. You make a bunch of mistakes, you learn from mistakes and then hopefully improve upon that uh, and learn from those and improve the process.
0: I think it's really interesting because over time you think, you know data is getting more transparent. And creates more competition. And when there's inefficiencies, people tend to move into those inefficiencies to gain alpha. And Lucerne has really been able to dominate and maintain. Besides what you talked about, is there anything else that people should be aware of that's happening in Europe?
1: Well, the, the, Europe has gone through, of course, a number of crises since we started. So, and that, that's why it's been harder to sort of buy the European index and make money, because since I started in uh, the early 2000s, I think about half the time that since I started, Europe has been in recession. Uh, We've gone through the Eurozone crisis where where Greece was about to uh, leave the EU. So the the whole euro was about to blow up. Uh, So that was very uncertain. There's always some political crisis going on in Italy or somewhere in the south of Europe. Then we had the financial crisis in 2008, which turned everything upside down again. Actually, the Eurozone crisis was after the financial crisis. And then we had the whole pandemic, etc., which impacted the whole world, of course, but I think Europe even more so than, than the United States. So there's always been big macro events that that have changed the landscape in Europe dramatically and at the same time Europe has, has stayed very fragmented so I think it's an area for larger players that attract a lot of smart people and talent etc. It's not been an attractive area to focus on because, because of the fragmentation because Italy is so different than Sweden, which is and Sweden is very different, believe it or not, again, than Norway or Finland and Denmark, which is very different than the Netherlands, different than Belgium, different than France. And it's very hard to grasp all those markets. And there are just very few people that have done this on a consistent basis. Uh, I would say it's virtually impossible to get up to speed about all those markets within a very short time frame, So it's really a matter of experience and you know, making the mistakes over the years, building the context, the connections over the years, learning how people think, learning how businesses operate, learning legal frameworks. I mean, it basically takes, takes decades. And my co-portfolio manager, Thijs Hovers and myself, have, have worked together now for over 15 years. And, I would say we probably, you know, we're probably meeting with about 1,000 CEOs or CFOs a year. And we've done so for the last 15, 20 years. So you can imagine the number of interactions that we've had, not only with CEOs and CFOs and middle management of listed companies, but also of non listed companies. And that's something I think that. A lot of people um, don't realize about Europe also is that if you look at what percentage of GDP is actually listed on the stock exchange, if you take Germany as an example, and this is, I'm shooting a little bit from the hip, but it's roughly, I'll, I'll be roughly within the, the right ballpark. If you add up the market capitalization of all listed German companies, you probably get up somewhere up to. 80% of German GDP. If you do the same thing in the United States, you add up all the market cap of all listed companies listed on NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange, you probably get to 250 to 300% of the US GDP. So the public equity markets as a whole are so much more important and play such a big, bigger role in daily, people's daily life. In the US than is the case in Europe. In Europe, there's just not an equity culture. I mean, you'd ask the average man in the street, he wouldn't know if the stock market would be up or down on a given day or a given year, or it's it's not on their radar screen. So that's also part of the reason that the markets are more inefficient. If you if you get smart kids graduating from university in, in Germany, in France, in Uh, The Netherlands, they typically would not go into finance, whereas here, at least it used to be, there used to be very desirable jobs. But in uh, Germany or France, it's more highly regarded or more appealing to become an engineer, go work for BMW, go work for Airbus uh, in their engineering program and things like that. So much less focused on the whole financial area of, of business.
0: That's so interesting.
1: That doesn't change very rapidly, right? So what you see here, the whole Robin Hood crowd and the Reddit crowd and, and, and every retail investor investing, you still don't see that in Europe very much. There's a, there's a little bit more awareness, but nothing like you see in the United States. And people are just not as connected to the equity markets as, as they are here.
0: Interesting. So in terms of Europe, how should people think about it in their portfolio, or how do you help your clients?
1: Well, it, we, we are pretty unique, right? I always say people look at Europe on a very binary basis, usually. They say, well, Europe is cheap. It's undervalued. Finally, you know, it's the, the moment in the sun for Europe. Now they're going to grow faster than the United States for a couple of years, and you get guys like Goldman Sachs strategists of the big, big banks and Bank of America, etc., say, okay, we overweight Europe and we neutral weight the U S and we overweight emerging markets, whatever. I think those calls are very hard to make. I think also that's a very difficult way to invest in Europe, because if you look at the European indices, they're basically dominated by pretty bad companies, you know, large utilities, large banks, uh, large telecom operators, so really pretty low-return, low-growth businesses. And if you look sort of underneath the hood, if you dig a little bit deeper, you know, it is an economy, the, the Eurozone, with over 400 million consumers. So it's actually a larger economy or equal the size of the United States. So you'd think something must be going on there, right? So there must be companies that are doing extremely well, that are ESG focused, that are focused on a certain technology or certain consumer areas or retail business, direct to consumer businesses, et cetera, et cetera. And and there are, because people are well-educated, they're big economies. The wealth level in certain countries, if you look at some Scandinavian countries in Switzerland, wealth per capita is actually higher than that in the United States. Uh, some countries, of course, it's lower, like in Spain and Greece, etc. But on average, it's, it's on equal footing with, with the United States. But the way we talk about Europe is don't look at Europe as, you know, this sort of Big value play that, you know, some years you can make some money versus the United States, other years you cannot. What we say is you invest in Europe because it's an inefficient area of the equity markets. It has been, apparently, it continues to be, and uh, it's a very interesting area for stock pickers. That can actually, you know, do their homework and pick those anomalously priced situations, and that, of which there are many. And they can be in Italy, they can be in Spain, they can be in Germany, they can be in Scandinavia, etc. There's a lot of country specialists within Europe, also because you, you could just focus on one country and find enough opportunities to uh, to generate very high high returns we happen to focus on all of europe and we don't particularly you know care where we invest as long as the risk adjusted returns are good it's just good to focus on all of europe i think because it 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 broadens the opportunity set for us so if we see you know a very appealing uh, financial in uh, in italy we can we can invest in that if we see a uh, construction company in, uh, in Scandinavia that's been you know, squeezed by margins and input prices, uh, it's a good short, we can go there. So we, we basically like the fact that we can invest across Europe and fi- find these stock-specific opportunities. And then given the fact, again, what, what I tell my clients and prospective clients and when it comes to us is that we we are not the kind of firm where you want to put 10, 20, 30, 40% of your assets in, but it is the kind of firm and it is the kind of strategy where we do find a lot of opportunities where we see 2x, 3x, at minimum 30, 40% return opportunities, but it comes with volatility. So... It's the kind of strategy where you say, okay, well, you have to trust the manager. You have to trust myself, uh, my co-portfolio manager, Tice, and our investment team to have done the proper homework on companies and to buy and short them at the right level and compound if you have the patience and, and you can stomach some volatility. So I always say, look, it's best to just allocate 1% or whatever your risk tolerance is or volatility tolerance rather is, uh, a smaller piece of it and put it in a corner, put it away and look at it again five years from now. If you're going to look every day or every week or every month, it it would drive you crazy.
0: Peter, you've been doing this for 20 years with Lucerne. What is the next thing for you?
1: It's basically keep doing this. Uh, I, I really... still get a lot of pleasure out of it. My goal is really to continue doing this as long as I can. As long as I enjoy it and uh, as long as we find the return opportunities and as long as it remains intellectually challenging and we maintain that edge, uh, there's no reason to stop really. And My business partner Tyson and I get along very well and we have good analysts, so we have a good team. It's very enjoyable to work with smart people in a good team. It's almost like a sports team. If you have a good team going, you keep it going for as long as possible. So undoubtedly, you know somebody will break his leg at some point, or something will happen, and the uh, we'll have to go through a reset. But the team is looking very good right now. So no plans to do anything else besides that. I think if if I make draw a parallel what i do outside of of course spending time with the family outside of work i'm a very passionate sailor and also a very competitive sailor and it's a little bit similar where there's always a new challenge the competition always increases things are always changing uh, every regatta is different every event is different in different venues uh Unexpected things happen that you have to react to. And again, it, it, it's something that I've done since I was three years old. I'm still competing about every month in very high level, almost professional level uh, sailing regattas and, and continue to enjoy it. So just continue raising the bar. So I, I don't see myself stop doing that either. It's actually a very good combination because... Sort of when I when I sail my regards, it really takes me away from from the stock picking and you know shut off Bloomberg for 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 three days and uh, entice my business partner takes over and I sort of recharge refuel the batteries.
0: I love that. This is my favorite question. What is your superpower and why?
1: The superpower is when it comes to business is just persistence and having a big belief, almost to a fault some sometimes, that if we've done the work and the analysis on the stock, that we're right. And I'm not easily frazzled by stock price moves that are extreme. And I think that's different with other investors where they get nervous about start price moves and they start reacting to price moves that they see in the screen. And in a way, I, of course I get impacted by it initially. And I have a very quick way to change my mindset and to change sort of a challenge and something that initially looks bad to change that into an opportunity. And I think you can see that in the history of the firm forever. And we've had some pretty rough times because we're operating in a very volatile subsector of the equity markets. Another reason not that many people want to get involved, but every time we get hit, we come back twice as strong. So we, and we learn, I learn a couple of lessons, sit down with the team and say, okay, what did we learn? And how we're going to do things better and differently and Actually, in the moment, how are we going to capitalize on this opportunity? Everybody else is panicking. Let's keep our heads cool and let's capitalize on it. So maybe that's another way of phrasing it. Superpowers, just keep keeping my head cool and just keep going. Don't listen too much to what other people are saying. Actually, hardly ever listen to what other people are saying. I really have a strong belief that sometimes... Other people say, well, isn't there anybody you can ask what to do? I'm like, no. There's nobody I can ask because, you know, I'm dealing with the markets. I'm dealing with stocks, whatever. The, the only person I can ask myself and I can have a discussion with my business partner, my analyst, and we can come to a rational conclusion. But there's no simple answer to any of the questions when it comes to market and, and stock market investing. And yeah. usually... Uh, the greatest opportunities are when everything looks the darkest. When actually me, myself, stop believing in something and you don't see any catalyst anymore. You don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. So how is this ever, ever going to change again? Still stick to uh, the game plan, not diverge from it.
0: I always say that people need to have conviction
1: yeah it's not only conviction it's sticking to it right it's sticking to it when everybody else is telling you that you're wrong uh that is the most challenging part
0: thank you peter for your time it was such a pleasure to hear your story
1: you're welcome amanda thank you very much
0: always a pleasure
1: thank you